All right, okay, here we go. Welcome to Creative Loving Spirit with me, Paul. Hi, friends. Uh, I'm in a good mood today. I'm standing up to record this, but stationary, so we're going to see how that goes. Has it got a different vibe? Last time I was on the floor, I was lying on my stomach. That's probably not good, really, is it? On to this episode's conversation. And it's a really good one. I've been listening back to it. I'm liking going through the process of having these conversations and then listening back to them sometimes a week or two afterwards. You don't really get the chance to do that much, do you? Like, hear the conversation again and and uh, understand it in different ways. Anyway, so I enjoyed listening back to this conversation with David Gilbert, who's a poet and a writer, who I know in other ways, as often is the case, and then subsequently discovered that David is a writer of poetry. I went to a workshop that David hosted and his passion and his deep, deep love for poetry and and what it's meant to him in his life really comes across in that space. And I think he has a real consciousness about himself and his process and his work. And he's curious about it and wanting to improve it and understand it. And that really lends itself to a quite a deep conversation, actually, a deeply um, considered conversation about all of those things. So we met in a room which was a little bit noisy. Started with a drill coming from beneath us, then some conversations on one side of the wall and then some music on another. And also a persistent humming throughout, which I realise now is possibly the table reverberating the table that had the recorder on it. So there we go, another opportunity to learn there about what not to do in the future. Um, So please stick with that. Hopefully it'll kind of meld into the background. Yes, the humming table, which relates quite nicely to a story David tells about the inspiration for a poem he would go on to write. Okay, well, no more messing around now, people. It's time for this conversation with... Paul McCauley and David Gilbert. sometimes call myself a poet, which does feel different to saying I write poetry. But of writing, I tend only to do poetry, although I have just written a couple of short stories, which are a bit weird. And weird partly because they came from a slightly different place, as well as being slightly surreal stories. And so I call myself... I somehow feel more comfortable calling myself a writer, but I don't even call myself that much in public when I have a, quote, real, unquote, job. (laughs) So it's still with slight embarrassment. Embarrassment or coyness or pseudo-humility or something. 
not quite sure what's hiding behind there. So what's in between, um, what's the difference in between, say, I wrote poetry and I am a poet? So immediately in my mind, I am a poet belongs to Carol Ann Duffy, Simon Armitage, those sorts of amazing people who, I suppose, know the form, have published lots, probably don't do much else than write or find ways in their life to weave creativity into their work, whether academia or... I know they do other things too, and I know Simon Armitage had a real job. But I suppose poet, for me, belongs to another group of people who are always better than me, who are always producing, who are prolific, who have done this for ages and who know Keats and the forms and are somehow brilliant mm. and I suppose when I got this recent pamphlet published which was winning quite a major a national competition it wasn't a, it's a small publisher but I think each time I get published I just move I edge towards saying maybe I support Leeds United by the way so they're a mid-table mediocre team in this, what used to be called the second division and I, I think I'm edging towards Leeds United status <laughs> without the disasters in their history although I've had those too. So I think it's a pretty recent year, two years where I've begun to say you know people are beginning to say I'm alright and people I respect not just you know, my wife who's great by the way. <laughs> <laughs> she is, she is amazing. She's an amazing editor, he says quickly, but it's true. But you know what I mean, it's, it's respected by other poets. I'm just beginning to get a bit more feedback that way. Because mm. I have potential. Kind of expert uh, kind of view on the poetry, not just the, the lay person. Yeah, and I think it, it goes together with an inferiority complex I've always had about most things in my life you know I'm not good enough other people are good enough so that all feeds in but not knowing enough I suppose my inferiority complex in poetry comes from not really having studied at A level not knowing the form not I'm a late learner to form and tradition and a lot of catch up to do mm. so yes I, I take a lot of reassuring that I'm good at anything and that's part of my problem. I also have a secret feeling that I am pretty good at words, always have been. So there's this sort of slightly arrogant versus slightly <laughs> over humble when I'm trying for, trying for middling. So I think in the last year or two being published more has given me that confidence to take each time the next step and more and more to write for myself rather than always sending off to competitions or magazines and just start trusting my own ear, my own radar, my own sense of what's good and writing more for my own pleasure rather than to please others, which is an interesting one given 
audiences and stuff. Yeah. So when you say not writing for publications, would you previously perhaps have been more inclined to try and zero in on a particular subject or way of dealing with things that wasn't necessarily guided by your own pleasure purely? Were you trying to anticipate what people were looking for? Not so much that. It's interesting that in my head what happens there is it goes into two parts of an answer to that. One is there was a feeling of wanting to be recognised for whatever I do, so endlessly churning out poems and sending them out and getting pissed off when I get the reject slip and a sort of I've got to prove myself. Another, The other part of that is when writing I think I have sometimes lapsed into what my wife has noticed particularly dwelling in my psychiatric experiences the six years that I was ill between the ages of 25 and 31 and ironically that being quite safe because it's Mm. a wellspring of horribleness but the sorts of poems I was going into felt well on the one hand they're quite interesting because funny things and strange things happen in psychiatric units that don't happen maybe to most people Um, so it was my unique well of suffering somehow that I could plant plant a flag in and say this is my stuff but it was also safe I was also whenever I wrote something I'd write a good or two lines and then sort of connect it to an image or something that happened and mould it around that content and I think I've more recently just become more exploring of other things and I was always sort of five, ten years ago doing that stuff and veering off into surreal stuff. Mm. So I remember a poem I wrote about, um, it's almost, in, in hindsight, it's very like the birds, Hitchcock, but it was about birds battering. It was a metaphor for being battered by thinking. So different birds flying at the window and colonies of parrots taking over and wrens screaming through the letterbox and beating them with old tennis rackets. It was very nice. Mm-hmm. But, but going into the surreal in order to still talk about the same stuff. And I think that was a bit of a departure. That experience about having uh, a wellspring, something unique about one's experience to which you go to draw from and create out of, I think that's possibly quite familiar. I know myself, I've noticed tropes in the things I, I write. Being able to move beyond those things mm. um, and free yourself from those things creatively is, is a good thing. How do you feel about the idea that perhaps that in itself, I'm not going to trivialise the experience, but as, as a wellspring, it's a sandbox or an anchor, a uh, sandbox in which you're playing or an anchor around which you can develop form um, and other ideas. It's interesting, I describe it as almost like a negative thing, you're right. So if I was to 
use it as a sandbox and also remember that somebody said Seamus Heaney was writing about his childhood until he died <laughs> and that everyone does it and of course the other trope is childhood and young childhood and big big one on adolescence at 15 years old lots of bad things happened and so that was a bit of a turning point so there are various stages of my life that I draw upon yeah like in anyone else and yes they are sandboxes and yes as that bird poem suggests I have done different things with it mm. which I think the surreal stuff was a particular step I just noticed I was writing a bit more weirdly and I quite enjoyed that mm. and I'm very encouraged by a particular tutor I've had who's been a bit of a guiding light just to go back hmm. to, um, so you, you describe your coming to poetry as uh, later in life. Hmm. But, um, how did how did that happen? How did it reveal itself to you? So in one sense, there are two two different stories. Right? One in one sense, I have always written something. I always kept diaries and journals, and throughout that six year illness period, I was sort of writing horrible, dark, repetitive, cathartic stuff. And, but I remember, at, I think, 13 or 14, writing a poem, which I remember thinking was okay. I saw like something about a climbing frame and two children climbing on a climbing frame, two younger kids. And I remember thinking, oh, that's quite all right. So it's always been there, but then I did sciences at A-level, and then was, but I've always written. I've always written reports. When I came out of university, I always wrote articles, reports, evaluations, prose stuff, which was one part, one part of my life. And then I was writing poetry before the breakdown in my 20s. I had a breakdown in 20, at the age of 25. And I remember during the psychiatric stay, there was a volunteer coordinator who got a a little newsletter going from the ward and asked me to put in a poem and I put in a poem and later I heard a fellow inmate had been really jealous of it because it was really good he said but I don't remember that it was later so 25 I was 31 moved in with my girlfriend then married her started writing again started going to workshops and I remember one workshop, although this may not be the, the formal change, but it was one workshop at the City Lit run by somebody called Laurie Smith. And he introduced himself by saying, this is the poetry class you come to when you're getting a little bit tired of your partner saying, very nice, dear, would you like a cup of tea? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the ne- it was the next <laughs> step up. Pitched in a very real way. Really? And it was so true. <laughs> Although my wife is a good editor and does know that stuff and she does more than just offer the cup of tea. But there were some really good poets in there who were starting off in their careers. Two or three of them had become quite well known. He was a great tutor. He was very... And they kicked off a magazine at that time called Magma, which is still going extraordinarily. And I had my first poem published in the first edition of Magma. So that magazine has got a particular calling on me. And it was quite a cooperative group, but they were all stunning poets. And I I remember those, quote, early days. And I think at about that time also, 
just before, when, I think it was slightly earlier, the Mersey poets, this is Brian Patton, Roger McGough, and Adrian Henry, that sort of came out of the late 60s, 70s. Roger McGough was in Scott Scaffold and sang Lily the Pink. You're too young to remember that. But he's also, does poetry, you know, Roger, everyone's heard of Roger McGough. And it was a book of poems, two books of poems that got me. One was Roger McGough's Summer with Monica, which was a long poetic piece about his summer romance with Monica. Mm. And I remember him writing about being in bed and the piles of milk bottles on the, stacking up on the doorstep. And it was really funny. And the other one was a poet, um, a set of poems by Brian Patton called Little Johnny, Little Johnny's Confession, I think. But the, and the first poem was about a seven-year-old boy that had run away and the final line was something like, they're bound to fight, I've blundered, I've blundered, uh, something, 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 they'll find me, they can track my lollipops or something. And I thought, I can actually write this stuff, this wasn't Keats, this was accessible. Mm. So it was the accessibility of it. Just sparked another memory. I used to like and still do an American weird poet called E. E. Cummings, who's who's very well known and, and liked him since I was 16, 17, 18. So there is an interest that stretches back to mm. different forms. And E. E. Cummings was very different to the Mersey poets. He was experimental, he played with language, he was very um, I don't know, he was very loving, very very much of the heart mm. and trying to break away from formalism in different ways. But I didn't know all these movements, I know there was other things they were fitting into all these poets. Did that appeal to you? Did it did you? appeal to me, I didn't, I didn't understand a lot of it. Mm. It was, but just lines, some lines mm. were staggering and some poems stayed with me, although I can't remember them offhand, I'm not very good at memorising. But I think it was the Mersey poets that got me back into it, post-breakdown, and that city lit class. And the discipline of writing and being with other great poets and taking it seriously. And that decision to go and seek some more input for yourself, some more yeah. challenge and, and finding peers, was that, did that feel like a, a leap? Was it something that felt dangerous? Or? No, it never felt dangerous. It felt, I don't know what it felt like. I mean, you can impose stories on the past. I mean, as we're talking, I'm thinking of other moments, other things in hindsight. I won a, the Barnet Open Poetry Competition mm. with a poem about my first child. So that must have been a bit later. That would have been, in, that would have been later, so it was 1999, 2000. So that was a bit of a leap. I went to another course run by the most amazing poet called Michael Donaghy, who's now unfortunately died. That group was just ballistic in terms of it, the quality of people in the room. And I was encouraged by one or two people in that class and we used to go to the pub afterwards. So I was beginning to hang out with people. Okay. So there was a social element, there was a sort of bit of an outside, we were a bit, all a bit weird being into this so you, stuff. Yes. But you, um, so you recognised um, ability, but you weren't um, intimidated by it? You didn't feel that you, you were starting to 
cosy up. I was intimidated a bit. Mm. I remember being... I remember not understanding iambic pentameter. De-dum, 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 de-dum. How many was that? One, I can't <laughs> I've stopped short there. But I remember not quite getting it. And I remember a really amazing poet called Carietta, who very patiently in a, in a cafe once said, look, just try ten syllables and you're bound to be there or thereabouts. <laughs> been sort of skirting around mm. really good poets it's almost like I've got little bits from different workshops but didn't go and do a creative I never did a creative writing workshop because I was always working I you know my wife uh, we'd had a really hard time you know she'd been ill as well mm. and so we had to make money and we had kids and one of the kids didn't sleep. It was a really difficult... I mean, even when we got better, things were really difficult. So it was always squeezed into my spare time. So I never could go on a two-year part-time creative writing course and really get it. So I was constantly picking up bits from books and picking up bits from people and going to workshops here and there. But the one that gave me confidence was one which was like a several-month course on versification by a woman called Mimi Covati and that was that was a stunner because that really took us through you know this is iambic pentameter mm. almost going back to what I should have learned if I stayed at school doing arts rather than but it wasn't going back into classic form it was saying you know go and do a bit of reading around this and what here's a sonnet here's a ballad here are all the different forms and that gave me a bit of a spine and I managed to realize that I can write a sonnet and I can, if pushed, do proper rhyme if I want to. And so that gave a bit of a spine. Did that I think. De- demystify mm. some of those things that yeah. maybe seem unassailable rhyme? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't... I don't think I've ever suffered quite from what you're implying in terms of A, being intimidated by the form I've been intimidated by the form, but by poets, by people around me. I think I've always been inspired mm. and wanted more. I think there's been a bit of envy and jealousy because that's always been in my life that I want to be like that, I want to be like that. But it's m- mainly because I've seen people write such amazing stuff. And, but you know, I was always, I always have and have had an ambivalence towards poetry. I don't get there is this bit I don't get it you know if I don't there are as a poet I've written read about read recently and I don't get what they're writing about but I there's something about it I like Mm. and there's always this thing that I think I should get it and know what it's about and the content before I like it and that's relaxed recently a little so there's always been a bit the feeling itself is enough it's valid enough your response to it without having more more and more right I do need an anchor so I do still need a bit of an anchor which is why that accessibility thing matters to me still I still whether or not it's it's 
narrowed by my past, but I would like to write poetry that both appeals to the really good poets, but brings people into it. So I do have this thing about accessibility. Mm. I do have a passion for accessibility in my work life, as you know, it's all about how people who are marginalised can have more power. And I do think there's something about poetry that I'm doing, I haven't thought about it before, just I said this, but there's some activist element in me that says, why should poetry be elitist? And it's not in a punk way or a sort of hip hop way or, you know, I just think, no, I'm discovering the beauty of it and I'm just, why can't, why can't somebody who who's, feels fearful of it, you know, if I can do it, they can do it sort of thing. Mm. What were the... Um... It's a new thought. Mm. I haven't thought about that. But it does parallel some of my work life. You, um, so, so what, I, what I hear is there's uh, a, a degree of self-belief or um, that you were, you're able to write and, you know, and, and to write well, or at least... I think it was there, it's been latent. I think I'm right. discovering that it probably always was there, but... Yeah. Where does self-belief come from for you? Because that, those are, that's a very fundamental thing. To, to be able to look at something and go, well, that's amazing, I think I could do that, or that's amazing, I never could. Um, I've always been good with words. Mm. I've been shit at painting and not great at music, but I've always... Are there influences in your early life that mm. helped you become good with words? Because that's um, not something that happens in a vacuum. Well, my father was a writer However, he, he was an editor and translator, so what I remember of his writing was um, he worked very early for Paul Hamlin and he then became a freelance editor and translator, so he had this little study. And what I remember him writing was the, I don't know whether it was Pic the Picador book of Highwaymen and Outlaws. And, um, a book called Cats, 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 Cats for Hamlet, Paul Hamlin, and he didn't like cats. And so he got these commissions, coffee table books. Right. I saw them as. So he had a facility with words. I do remember, I don't have very huge memories of our togetherness. He was quite emotionally detached. Nice man, but quite shy and withdrawn in some ways. Did you see him work? Did see him work. He would, he would, um, I did see him work. I would go into his study and I would, particularly when he was doing a translation of a magazine called World of Wildlife, which was animals were my thing. I wanted to be David Attenborough more than anything else. So it's always about so biology and animals. That's where I went science ways. And, and behaviour. So behaviour has always been interesting to me. So a lot of my writing is about relationships and people and skews on narrative. And I'm not an imagistic mm. poet. It's more, it's more psychological than anything probably. But so I saw him with these scattered part works and um, 
He obviously had a facility with words, but I never really read his stuff. Never really thought, oh, wow, he's a writer. But there must have been something. You know, I remember him being very good at master, the mastermind general knowledge round when I was watching him or University Challenge, and I always thought, wow, he does know his stuff. It's obscure Latin forms for things. Mm. So there must have been something, and I think I may have underestimated my influence by him. I, I do think more and more, this is again a story we make up, is that it was the silence in my household that got me to write stories. So, it's all, so for me, the idea of what I hope my book, if I get a book published after this pamphlet, it will be called Mining the Silence. So the silence of my mother, who was a kinder transport refugee, her coming over at nine years old and never talked about the Holocaust, never talked about what happened and what she escaped from. Her parents came over, luckily, just escaped, but she was an only child, didn't speak English. So German was her first language, but we never heard her speak German apart from on the phone, hidden away on the bedroom. So there was this um, space. And my father, who was quite emotionally repressed, came from quite a posh Jewish household who had come earlier, was not very good with his feelings. So there was a, a middle class, 60s, 70s, quite emotionally repressed household. Two older brothers, who were much older than me, so sometimes I felt like the only child a bit, and everything, you know, was quite bored a lot of the time. Um, had friends, I wasn't like that lonely. But I do think part of my writing about my childhood is to to mine what was going on in the same way as that six years of psychiatric experience mm. was another form of mining the silence. So I've started, I've got about 20, 25 poems under the heading of mining the silence about my mother. So different ways of approaching silence and different ways of trying to rewrite the story knowing that I'm never going to know the story of her mm. or me or can one know silence and what it means and our speculation and interpretation. I'm fascinated by people's interpretation of things more and more. You know what, in, even in my work, the assumptions that people make, you know, they say this person said that probably because mm. and we just make a, this unfortunate stab at it yes start telling myself stories and yes and me and having told my own stories so this is really interesting Paul mm. because I, while we're talking I'm reframing quite a lot of the story that this came out of a lack of belief and actually what what we're talking about suggests there was always a belief in my ability to articulate what was going on and my truth. So in my work and probably in my poetry, the, the thing I want most is a trust in my own truth, whether that's the truth of what happened or whether it's, oh, that's quite good. So having that sort of self-validity, having believing in myself, having the validity to say, this is what I want to do, this is how I want to write, this is a good poem, that's a good poem, and that's mm. what's going on when I was little. So in, something about 
not belief, not about self-belief, but about the validity of what I'm saying mm. and how I'm saying it. In one aspect, I could see that how that might always be paradoxical because, for example, you're talking about what I hear is talk, you're talking about trying to bring understanding to these spaces of silence to to perfectly put understand what's going on in there, and then um, having that be valid, but it's um, it sounds like a constant negotiation, or that you're never going to arrive at a place uh, where you can, or can you ever arrive at a place where you can separate yourself? So that that is. Um, so I suppose my dare I say a spiritual struggle now at the grand old age of fifty six is knowing that human beings create their own meaning. So not believing in a monotheistic God, despite being a Jew, you know, I'm drawn much more to Buddhism and mindfulness. And so knowing on the one hand that we need stories, we need meaning, we need narrative for our own survival, yet at the same time knowing they're always going to be wrong. You know, because just how can we know? You know, or, or not wrong, but just being te maybe temporary. Mm. Yes. So this, you know, this is how I see it now. But the next time I write the poem about those birds battering at the window, they might be about something else. God knows. Yeah. Maybe. And that's kind of exciting, actually, the malleability yeah. of, of those things. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, if they're about creating meaning, then meaning isn't fixed, is it, um, for people? Um, yeah. And and. Funnily enough, trying to, I'd like to write less unhappy stuff. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to, I'd less like to, but I'd like to, I'd like to, I'm, I'm writing, I'm, I'm a bit worried that I'm writing, I'm beginning to write stuff that is karma. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not as jagged and not as, as edgy. And yet, do you put any stock into something that I've talked to a couple of people about, and it is the, um, the notion that one has to suffer to make something, or something good comes, only comes from uh, having to suffer for it. You know, the flip side being, when I'm happy, I can't write a good song. <laughs> uh, I can't decide what I think about that. Okay. I'm not sure. I just, because I, I know the science for and against, and I, and I know... Have you had a position on, have you had a thought on it before? It is obvious to me that much of my writing comes from a place where I was wounded, when I was wounded. And a lot of it is about reclaiming either the emptiness of that, or getting something from it, you know. I don't necessarily believe you can then generalise and say that's true for everybody else. Mm. I mean, I, I, you can go into say, thinking, you know, why did Plath and Keats write, if not, but I'm sure. And, you know, they're all, Rudyard Kipling was a miserable bugger as well. He had a terror, you know, his son died. I mean, yet a lot of poets have suffered hugely. I just wonder about, you know, Ted Hughes has suffered hugely, but he was writing great stuff when he was happy with Sylvia Plath. 
And he always wrote amazing stuff when he was younger. And he wasn't, I don't think, he hadn't suffered hugely before. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong on that. So I, I just wonder, I just wonder. I think it's, it could be right, but I think it may be a lazy trope, if that's the right word. Yes, you know, you have to, it's a bit like being, you have to be, you know, it's a bit like the one on craziness and madness and creativity. I'm not sure that's true. I think it might be a correlation rather than a cause or something like that. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But certainly my writing does come, or usually has come, from a position of unhappiness and suffering. But when I'm writing that hole, I can't write. feel like to you is it a, so you said you can't be in the, the hole and, and write from that place mm. uh, what mode or are you in or does it vary more and more an attentive mode more and more just trying to be in the present mm. and just noticing so yesterday I thought there was nothing happening and I was at home and I was getting a bit tired and I went for a walk and just suddenly getting out and there, was, and there was one tree with blossoms and I just, don't know why, I just stopped there and suddenly heard loads, you know, there were hundreds of these and wasps in it. It was just like this humming tree. And I thought, hmm, that's an interesting thing. And I can think that that might occupy a few lines somewhere. Usually, it starts with a line rather than an image or mm. it's a line that's after something's happened but sometimes I can see a moment I could quite easily lock into a space that says the room full of noise you know we try and find a quiet room drill and that's mm. that I can see immediately that could be an entry point, the quiet room, you know, and just something surreal and funny about just trying to find the quiet room. Mm. So it's sometimes an idea that when there's this constellation of things that I just notice, or it's, yeah, I think it's about noticing or just being attentive, a bit more attentive, and in a slightly different, it's slightly off kilter though. It's slightly away. It's a different form of noticing from when I'm, say, facilitating a workshop. How can you can you articulate the uh, difference in quality? How is it a different attentiveness? Off kilter. Well, Emily Dickinson always said, "Tell the truth, but tell it slant," which is a phrase I like. And Wordsworth said. Poetry is an overflow of emotions recollected in tranquility. Mm. So that's that middle, is that what you're calling the middle distance? I don't know whether it's that. So you just, so take what happened to us over there with those noises. Just, you know, that, that was the like, little. And somebody else said, I can't remember where this came from. When you have an idea for a poem, it's like trying to carry a saucer of milk you just got you know you just 
kind of carry it very, very gently. Because mm. if you bomb in now and say, I've got to write a poem about a quiet room, maybe or maybe it doesn't come. I can see me trying to have a go at that tonight. I'm sure a neurologist would say it's a different part of the brain that's doing different sorts of connections. Mm. So in a workshop I might be... My brain does that structured piece. So on Myers-Briggs I'm a... The thing at the end, you know, there's something about structure. Is that about making connections, spotting themes? Spotting themes. Right. So that... And is that... Uh, is that part of a different quality to...? I don't think that's the same as the poetry. I think... So spotting themes have a natural qualitative and analyst. That's what I do best. Yeah. But in that zone... But is that different? In the quality... Well, I, I see a lot of similarities in, in mm. perhaps what you might bring to writing poetry. You use the, you use the term constellating. Ooh, uh, I like about that. Well, you used it. So. Did I? <laughs> yes, you did. Did I? Yeah. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, I think constellations. Yeah. No, I didn't use that. Okay, well we can listen back to it. Let's hear it. And if even if you didn't, what's wrong with it? Constellating. But um, uh, 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 noticing things and mm. what's bringing it together, bringing together, making a little star system out of these things. When you mentioned Wordsworth's um, mm. quote about um, it's uh, written from a place of tranquility. To me, that's about, it's about being uh, the storm or the event has passed and being able to step, have a remove from it in order to be able to capture it. Is a space between noticing and encapsulating or trying to capture, is a space always necessary? Can you notice something and dive in? So my, with that question, my mind goes to the six years of black notebooks I made on my illness and my guess is there weren't very many good lines in there and I've written much better poems about that period later mm. which corresponds to something that poets have been discussing forever and ever is about whether you go with your instinct and stick with your first idea or you know how much do you edit a lot in poetry workshops about killing your baby that horrible metaphor where you, that line that perfect line or that line you came up with the humming tree actually that poem about the humming tree may go completely off and talk about the snail I stepped on rather than the bees. But I'd be so attached to the humming tree that you wouldn't realise that the snail was the better poem. Mm. So there's all sorts of different things going on in terms of the distance and the permission you give yourself. The other thing that happens with poetry, must happen with other things, is the humming tree meant everything to me because it really happened. But the funnier poem is about squishing the snail while you're listening to a humming tree. And actually that's the, that's the more important poem. And you realise that on that day something terrible happened, not something good. And you actually needed to write about the snail mm -hmm. and squishing something rather than that. So I think the distance travelled between initiation and editing can be of many sorts, perhaps. 
The other thing I'd like to come back to is your thing about constellation. I do wonder about myself, and it is a story I tell myself. I always feel I'm not imaginative enough, which is bizarre, because people say I should be much more grounded than I am because I'm constantly <laughs> going off on tangents. However, I sometimes think that brain that's constellating, bringing together is quite a imprisoning device that it stops me from looking in different ways. So I do grids. Mm. Why don't I do pentagons? Why don't I do, why am, so I do sometimes feel that the constellating I do, this is a new thought, new thought Gilbert, the constellating I do for a poem about the empty room or the humming tree I can feel those as two poems. I can feel that I could go back and write a poem about it. That does feel slightly different to the constellating I'm doing in a room. It does feel different. It's about, and I suppose my worry is that I, it's got to be about the humming tree and that I don't experiment. That what I think I need to do more is go back to written words and, and not get try and get the poem straight down I think right. I should be I think I should be lighter now this is the next stage of my poem I think I should be lighter I think I should be more experimental with the humming tree and just do for tonight so instead of going on to my iPad I was walking in the humming tree and, and then try and get a few 16 lines and then craft it mm. I need to go and write 10 pages with Humming Tree there and just see where it goes and see whether it goes to Squishing Snail. That does feel like a different, it feels like I need to open, whereas the constellating you were talking about in my, it felt like a, there's that, there's that, I'm going to grab that, I'm going to make it into a whole and I'm going to describe everything. I think poetry should be about opening meaning rather than... I don't know, there's something in that that's true for me, but I don't quite know what I'm saying. So, uh, to me, I hear a difference between um, divergent and convergent thinking. Yeah. That initial impulse... Um, th th there is a tendency, I think, um, it's true for all of us to want to convert our thinking to land on something that's definite, that is the summation or the encapsulation of an idea. And creatively in that process, um, the challenge is to try and stay in the divergent, widen out as far that's as you can. That's a much better way. Can you take that? Can you put Probably that in my mouth? mouth? That's great. Well, but you could, <laughs> oh, but that, maybe that exchange is a, a case in point because um, you needed to explore the, the, boundary, mm. the boundaries of what you were trying to understand and then we try to bring that in. Um, and the paradox for me is people say I'm divergent. Mm. You know, in my poetry, it can go that way more than it is for other people. But that's not the self-image I have of me. And that's not your internal experience of, of what that's like. You feel like... I just feel there are two different processes going. I, I don't know, but that, that, that convergent, I'm going to keep that convergent, divergent idea because that's... That, that resonates with me.
so you write, um, you type poetry. Usually. Um, and I realised I'd never, I never thought. Has that always been the case? Quite a lot, and I'm trying to go back, I'm just sort of showing you this notebook. So I'm trying these days to free flow in, in the book and then go back to have a radar for the good bits. So often it'll be a flow and, and sometimes I'm using a particular book at now which is um, a great book. Um, I don't know whether I should advertise well it's called it's called um, the Writer's Book of Days is the one I recommended yeah. to by Judy Reeves. So there's a topic, there's a prompt, I and mean, there's straightforward prompts and other stuff in there. So I'll write for 15. I haven't done this every day, but there was a period a month ago when I was just very driven. But I'll come back to a phrase. I can now sometimes see the line that I like. Right. Or the chunk. Or, and, and make the connection that this is not, but those two things link. Looking at these lines on the page, they're not the first lines, they're... They're in the middle, aren't they? Buried in, in other things. How do those feel, um, those two different ways of doing things? So, to flow in on the handwritten page versus, uh, you know, typing those, those lines um, on an iPad. Does it, does it feel different? It, it does. I think this is more divergent and that's more convergent. I think that the iPad thing appeals to my, okay, it's on the page, I'll, I'll just reduce it so I can see all those words on there and then I'll swap it around. However, there is something quite nice about cutting and pasting because you can collage stuff. Mm. So you can, in some ways it could be divergent. So I, I have a feeling that as I accept to develop a practice. Oh, that sounds so posh. As I develop my poetry <laughs> practice, there's something about you doing both and knowing and just having different ways in. I mean, David Bowie used to cut up bits of color. I mean, yes. any way, you know, having a messy room is what my poetry tutor has. I'm, I'm, there's a part of me that's very chaotic, but actually I'm quite an orderly organized person so my anxiety I contain about you know I, I like knowing what I'm doing and achievement so achievement is always in the back of my mind I think the poetry and I'm coming to a middle age where I while it's a crisis I'm always you know, reasonably confident of my professional status to a certain degree so I feel I can experiment more so I think this this is a mess of a bit of the conversation, but what it what it illuminates for me is I'm at a bit of a crossroads mm. in my writing practice for a lot of contextual reasons, age reasons, professional reasons, personal reasons, and how that's beginning to manifest in my writing practice is I am going back to writing and doing this handwritten stuff and experimenting that way. But I also do think I could use the iPad and, and the PC in different ways to how I'd used it before. So a lot of writing, people say, it does something different to your brain to write than to type. So, mm -hmm. so I wouldn't say it's a conscious thing, but it is a process I've noticed me doing in the last three months since I got that book. Okay. Spinning off on that, 
to come to something that's fascinating. Uh, <laughs> I'm really enjoying the ball. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Is this all right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what it's all about. It's the stuff that's it's just that. This is what it's like to be me making things. Because mm. um, we, we don't often see it. We just go, oh my God, you're brilliant. And you, you, you don't, you're not suffering at all. <laughs> um, my, so one of the things I notice and admire about um, your, the practice you have of writing regularly yeah. and sharing it regularly um, so I, I think when I, when I describe that, I, I think about your I follow you on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, and and you, you share your work there. I'm interested in how that came about and what sure. that has taught you about your practice. Probably that I want to be loved. <laughs> that I want people saying how lovely it is, even if they're not poets. So that's a semi-truth. I do think it's still that slightly neurotic search for validity. I don't... The regularity thing is a struggle, but as my kids grow older, there's more space to do it. Mm. So there's a very simple reason for the regularity. And since a workshop last October, the version of the one that's going to... we're going on... um, Mm that gave me so much confidence and such a boost. I was writing every day and I just made friends with one woman who's a prose writer who we just got that book and we started sending each other stuff. So the regularity and the discipline and getting the notebook was a direct result of that October workshop and there was a sort of intensity to what me and I were doing. We'd do the prompt, I'd get up at 6.30 or whatever. That's faded off now, but it's still got a legacy of things and I still want to do that. And I I feel I'm not doing that at the moment and should go back to that regularity. So I think regularity, peer pressure, prompts, um, seriously, having, having a reason to do something and maybe the Twitter thing is part of that. I think the showing off though, the Twitter thing, the sharing is slightly odd. I would like to say it's political and it's veered into the political because, but this is only of marginal interest really, um, I think it's deeper than this, but one, one reason why I belligerently share is because I've had a run-in with a magazine who, when I challenged them, said, you can't submit to our magazine because you're sharing it, sharing it on Twitter. And I just think it's bizarre. What's bizarre about that? Well, well the thing, the thing, so, okay, so, so the poetry world is odd. I, you know, there are hundreds of small magazines, small publications kept going by amazing people and before the digital media age the rules were for submission for a competition or magazine was poems need to not been published we are taking you because you're special you're ours we're giving you this great privilege of being published in our magazine, which has a circulation of about 400 at max. 
and that was the gateway. You got to be published in a small magazine, then you went somewhere else, then there was the Poetry Society at the end of that grail for the Premiership people. But digital media has come along and, and destroyed that, you know. And so I was starting to share stuff on Twitter. I did, I did last, a couple of years ago, I had a few people, I said, look, I'm going to raise money for the local wildlife centre, I'm going to do a poem a day. Because I can't run marathons, and I got into a I got into a discipline of writing a poem a day, and sharing it with about twelve people who are the, the people I share mm. on that woodpecker um, account, and they liked the poem. Some are decent, you know, you know. They're all quite admiring, and it's all lovely to get that feedback. And now they'll start saying, "I didn't like that one," which is good. But at some stage, I, somebody in my poetry group said, you realise that if you put them out on Twitter, you're not going to get published. And I thought, you know, go away, that's ridiculous. And I just checked with, I just said, I've published these poems, what would you say to a particular publisher? And she said, we wouldn't touch them. And I just got into an argument with them. I said, this is archaic. Mm -hmm. And they said, the reason we're doing this is because it will affect readership. You know, not so many people will buy your pamphlet or buy our magazines if it's being published online. And I said, that's absolute bollocks. And it's that interpretation. I said, this is complete rubbish. So I did my own Twitter poll. I did some sort of try to neutralize. You know, if you liked a poem of mine, would you be more or less willing to buy a poetry pamphlet within which it was published. Mm. It was like 98%. I mean, it's very unscientific. I said, there, there you go. They never responded. So there is this thing. Mm. So that's a, bit, that's a bit of a tangent, but that, the po I think the poetry world has changed. I don't know a lot about the poetry world, so don't push me too much yeah. <laughs> on the publishing world. But it's, and I've just kept on sharing because I'm just, is there, there is there value in it? I, mean, I know in, in in a way you say, well, that's for you know validation. I want to you know pats on the back. You know, I definitely recognise yeah. that thing. But you also describe. I mean, it's important. I think for people who make things to feel encouraged to find yeah. their cheerleaders and be you know cheered. And then you also talked about uh, how some people have been with you long enough that they'll say, actually, David, don't like that one. Yeah. And that in itself, you know, is, is feedback that might be useful to your practice. Is, I mean, would you, would you advocate if, you know, someone doing that to try their work, you know, put it in front of people? I think you have to be careful. I think you need to feel safe. Mm. So I don't think I would have done it 10 years ago if that stuff had been around. So I think you need the safety of a real workshop and people who know what they're doing and a, bit, and a good tutor. But I think in general it's, you do need, yeah, safe, you need safe challenge. Mm. Um, I was also thinking that more and more, well, I distrust this motive, this altruistic motive in me, is that it's great when other people say, well, because you did you wrote that thing I've gone back to my writing mm. and I've just had an email from somebody um, 
who was an administrator in a mental health organisation who was looking through my blogs and they published one of my blogs and said, by the way, I've noticed that you write a lot of poetry and can I, can I talk to you about that? And she phoned me up and we had half an hour and she said, young woman and really not sure and I just said buy this book buy that Judy Reeve book just write just do it and she's just emailed me just I emailed just now about an hour ago she said I've got that book it's great I've started to write that's nice that's amazing that's nice it's, yeah, that's nice yeah I, I, I think um, that there is I think there is an altruistic thing uh, that uh, creative people or I see in the creative sort of sphere that people do encourage others mm. and also I don't think you can underestimate underestimate um, how what you do inspires others and you might not even see it and sometimes you do sometimes people go I you know hearing you talk about that or seeing that made me want to mm. um, so income beginning to own it a bit more mm. so I'm doing more workshops and more stuff and want to start a venture on bringing poetry and mental health in so the other thing that's happening is as I have more, more time trying to bring that convergent brain together with that divergent brain mm. and actually do the two loves of my life which are about mental health and well you know cre and creativity and find ways of doing that and bringing things together so it's a change does that have a, I don't know, I, I, I sense, it feels like a, a healing thing to bring mm. those two things together. Very much so, very much so. And I think that's part of the middle age crisis or something. I think I'm going to touch wood, you know, I don't do drugs, I don't like motorbikes, I'm not doing adultery, um, but I am escaping into my obsession I am escaping into writing and um, sometimes my wife is saying you know you've got your other love over there can you come to dinner <laughs> you know, my, other, my kids have got their screens but I'm just at the moment I'm pretty addicted now all I want to do tonight is go to the pub and write those two poems now <laughs> and that, and that, hearing that is inspiring yeah. um, someone who's looking to jump in or reconnect mm. with a writing practice uh, around poetry, what advice do you give them? What feel like the most salient bits of guidance to... Read. Mm. Read. Read. Just read. Go, go to a bookshop and read. And the, the, the Blood Axe anthologies, Being Human, Staying Alive and... There's another one I can't remember, but there's a, a set of Blood Axe modern poetry books, anthologies, which are just staggering. Lots of great anthologies. Um, so read first, but try not to be put off by how amazing they are. That's the other, that's the danger. Find a group of people where you feel safe and, start, and buy yourself a notebook.
welcome back. Listening back to that conversation with David, I was struck by uh, the working out and meaning making that was happening in the room. He has an ability to sit with something and try to understand it and um, is happy to share that as well, which is, I think is great to listen to and, and was one of my hopes for having these kinds of conversations that they might actually be useful spaces themselves for the people I speak to to think a little deeper about things, you know, without getting too hoity-toity with myself. But it's not often we spend a lot of time reflecting on... Uh, our own creative nature and where that comes from so yeah so I hope you enjoyed that as mentioned David has got a, a pamphlet of poetry out which was published earlier in the year by Cinnamon Press it's called Elephants Fragile so if you go search for that or click on the links in the notes you can find that thank you very much for listening again this has been me standing up talking into a recorder which is attached via a little tripod to my clothes dryer next to my window in my room. There you go, a little insight there for you. Join us again next time uh, for another conversation with another creative loving spirit, which is also another good conversation which I'm really excited to share with you. I'll be with a writer and author. Find out next time who that is. Okay then, lovely people. Have a great day, have a great week. Farewell.